Welcome to Nobody Told Me. I'm Jan Black. And I'm Laura Owens. Joining us on this episode is angel investor, Bionic co-founder, and best-selling author, David Kidder. Here's why we love David. He says the purpose of his life and work is to ignite growth in the lives of people and organizations to help identify their proprietary gifts and solve the grand challenges of our times. David's latest book is called New to Big, How Companies Can Create Like Entrepreneurs, Invest Like VCs, and Install a Permanent Operating System for Growth. David, we thank you so much for joining us. Incredibly grateful to be here. Appreciate it. There are so many things we'd like to talk with you about, but tell us why you feel that the purpose of your life and work is to ignite growth in the lives of others. It's sort of a purpose that I stumbled on about a decade ago, not in the least was raising three sons and thinking about the purpose of their lives. I wrote a, an idea called the belief board, which was really about the what's the central purpose of having a family and raising kids and then our beliefs around that. And then up in the Wall Street Journal about 10 years ago is kind of how to lead your family as if it was an organization. And out of that came a, a series of books, the startup playbook and now new to big, which is really around the idea of uh, how to lead your life in systems and with purpose and really was about ultimately about growth, about who you're becoming as opposed to accomplishing who you are. How is starting a startup or a company of any type a good way to find out who you are as a person and improve yourself because you face so many challenges and also good things happen, hopefully? Yeah, I mean, startups are great tests. I mean, even this season as we're all going through uh, the pandemic, you know, you kind of have to fall in love with the test uh, because it will shape you. And uh, trying to escape sort of that discomfort is a miscalculation in many ways because it allows you to experience growth. Startups are great tests. They are, you know, ideas or solutions in search of a need in the world. And this, in my experience, has been, you know, whoever sort of wins a new marketplace or solves a new problem, in most cases, cares the most. And more importantly, it always comes from a proprietary gift, an insight or secret that they have that few people in the world have on how to solve that need. And it takes almost an irrational amount of uh, passion and purpose and uh, sort of care or obsession to be able to actually achieve those outcomes. And so startups are kind of engendered life and uh, those organizations uh, sort of take you on the journey of who you're becoming. And ultimately you arrive at a destination about uh, who you've become in all this. How are startups, when we think of startups in the, in the tech world, how are they different from mom and pop operations, from someone who wants to start a corner laundromat or a restaurant? How is the thinking different? Well, there is a distinction, uh, not good or bad, on sort of the rate of uh, growth. So uh, startups are high growth companies, as in um, really taking on a grand challenge that would ultimately result in you know, a company that would be doing, you know, say excess of a hundred million of revenue within sort of three to seven years. Mom and pop shops or, you know, home businesses or lifestyle businesses typically don't have that same growth rate. But honestly, the journey is really no different. It's still a a very difficult thing to take even a small business and make it successful. That's why I think the failure rate uh, within five years is almost 90% of a small business. But those that survive that have typically figured out what they're really good at. They figured out that they care deeply about um, the need they're solving for and ultimately customers come around them 
to be with them in that journey and experiencing the success. So uh, in that context, things aren't different just relative to the, the rate and the size of change and growth. I love how you say that you can't be obsessed with a solution. You have to be obsessed with the customer's problem you're trying to solve. What's the difference? You know, I, I wrote this book uh, called The Startup Playbook about 10 years ago, and I spent 300 hours with 40 of the best living entrepreneurs of our time that I had sort of friends or friends of friends with. Sarah Blakely of Spanx fame, uh, Robin Chase of uh, Zipcar, Elon Musk of SpaceX, Tesla fame, Reid Hoffman of LinkedIn, who wrote the foreword of the book. And, you know, what they all said really flowed through these um, sort of criteria These I call it the five lenses. They all effectively said, you know, when an idea passes through these stage gates or these, these lenses, they typically lead to extraordinary outcomes. The first one of those lenses and the most important is the idea of proprietary gift, really that why you. Um, and so that leads in many cases to an insight that is truly an unfair advantage because you understand the needs so differently. And so, um, you know, if it begins there and that giftedness is there and that care is there, that proprietary gift just yields extraordinary returns. You know, my raising my own sons, you know, I'm not trying to raise little excellent sheep who are trying to be really well-rounded. I, I look for, you know, that proprietary gift and that need in the world they care most deeply about so they can quit weaknesses and focus on those 10x strengths in their life. And that's sort of where happiness lives. When every 10 hours feels like one hour, you're kind of on to it, right? You probably not unlike your own podcast journey as a mother-daughter, you know, it just became the easiest thing in the world to do together because you cared the most. Interesting. Interesting. I'm wondering where you see companies struggling in this particular time, because it seems like we've seen a lot of companies that are facing almost unsurmountable challenges at this point, but we've also seen a lot of opportunities. So what are your observations on what this time offers in terms of challenges and, and opportunities? Well, it's extraordinary. I mean, we they're, they're for the last sort of 30 years, we've been working on efficiency and optimization and planning models. That's why we have, you know, by, by just degree, we have masters of business administration. And the assumption is, is that we know the answers. We can scale the answers. We can perfect them. And that's true when things are stable. But when they're disrupted, i.e. very unstable, that really means that the rate of change outside exceeds the rate of change inside. So, the question is, is how fast does the organization learn? And sometimes to learn, you have to set down old beliefs. And so it's almost another way to say this is what's the rate of unlearning in the company that is uh, matching the rate of change externally. Another way to think of this is just the, the, the needs in the world. Even if you were selling to a customer you understood, they've changed. You know, uh, this pandemic has revealed, um, you know, not only the test of resiliency of companies to change, but also how quickly our, our world that we thought was stable is really quite fragile. So big businesses' ability to change beliefs, to experiment and test new solutions to the problems of their customers as they've changed is really going to be the live-die test for more organizations. And, you know, honestly, you know, planning is radically different than discovery. And the most powerful model in business that solves for discovery is really the model of venture investing, which is really about problems and, and portfolios. And entrepreneurship and entrepreneurships are uh, have permission to solve needs to come back with commercial truth, experiment based learning, because it ultimately teaches you what uh, the customer wants, because whether they can say it or not, it lives in their behaviors. And so behaviors don't lie. You have to be in a position to discover the solutions to their needs with them as opposed to tell them inside out. 
we're living in such an odd time, obviously, and we don't know if and when this is going to end. So should entrepreneurs be focusing on trying to come up with an idea that survives the pandemic and considers that life is going to be normal at some point? Or should they be thinking about the conditions we're in now, wearing masks and being afraid to go out and going to virtual meetings and all of that? You know, the mind loves consistency and planning, right? Especially it's our, it's our nature. So I think that trying to imagine getting back to the past, right? you know, getting back to the normal or the new normal is really uh, uh, a mistake. I honestly think, you know, if you ask people who are at home right now working in various, you know, you know conditions, if they're you know, surviving or thriving, most people are basically surviving. They're adapting, but they're, they're not certainly not thriving. And so I really think the shift from surviving to winning, right? That mindset shift means just letting go, letting go of your goals that you had, letting go of your, the conditions around you, letting go of the boundaries of like what you control and don't control, what's knowable and unknowable. It's getting smaller, right? We can only control only know so much. And so right now the test for most people is, is am I living in my purpose? In the absence of planning, which is getting somewhere, if I can't make that progress in planning, I do need to know my North Star. And so for my family or my kids or my, my business, those deeper questions of am I doing the right things and the right purpose is profound. And the second thing is element to this is just asking yourself, are you doing the right things every single day? Because we don't really know how long we need to sustain this work or this, 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 this moment. You know, doing that next right thing, almost from a clean sheet of paper every day, will help lead us um, so we can actually rest. Setting down the anxiety, setting down the, the urgency to, to get somewhere is very much part of the ability to survive this uh, moment because we don't control much. And so we have to be able to restore ourselves every night so we can maintain the conditions to, uh, to be in this sort of way of managing ourselves for a long period of time. I expect that to happen for the next, at least the next year, if not the next two um, in, in how we, uh, and how we lead ourselves and others. How do you envision the world changing and especially the business world when this is all said and done? Well, I mean, certainly the, the, the we've done some analysis on this, certainly the division between, you know, the winners and the sort of losers of the space are going to get more, more and more divided. I mean, our, by our measurement, only about a third of the marketplace is positioned on the right side of COVID. And not, in most cases, not because they're geniuses, it's just that their business is solving a problem that matters more now than it did before the pandemic. Um, and that's one position to take. The other position is that the more a company or even our own lives drives for consensus, uh, the more likely it will be to fail. And uh, the reason why is that when you back up and you look at growth, both well, I think it's true in our personal lives too, is that about... 70% of all the returns, the unbounded returns that lead to growth come from about 7% of the capital or time we deploy. So if we do 100 things or we invest in 100 or 10, 7% of the sort of energy or money that goes into it is going to lead to all the gains. And you go back to the beginning and you say, well, why did we invest or you know, time, energy, money in that 7 out of 100, that 7% of the capital? They usually come down to two reasons why it worked. One is um, high conviction, which is the question of why us and why now? And then secondly is, is non-consensus, meaning that we make all of our gains, all of our growth from um, the ideas with the highest disagreement rate. And that means also that when we have consensus, we're basically at a huge disadvantage. In fact, you're probably kind of screwed if you look for consensus because, you know, there's no learning. And so it's another way to say that, you know, growth lives in discomfort. It's now arrived at your doorstep. 
And therefore, you have to adapt and it's going to be uncomfortable. And you got to start pursuing, experimenting with things that really are against things that you would normally think, hey, is this a good idea? You know, leaning into that non-consensus will allow you to discover a new truth about yourself and the marketplace and the company that leads to a discovery that where growth lives. And I really relate that to our personal lives as well. I was going to say in your life, I think that investing in Airbnb and SpaceX were two very brave investments because they were so new and revolutionary and you didn't know if people were going to embrace those. Did you know for sure when you invested in those that they were going to be mega companies or were you pretty unsure? I'm curious what made you invest in them in the first place? Well, well, one is connections and network effects. So through those, you know, both investing through funds that invest them, but also direct investments. When I look up back up and look at like what really worked, you know, there's a lot of statistics around this is that you're always in the beginning are investing in the entrepreneur. Typically about 40 to 50% of the reason why you invest in the seed or the series A uh, round in early stages, because you believe in the obsession, the giftedness of the founders. And so, um, and it's not even about the idea. In fact, most ideas don't, certainly don't survive first contact with a customer or a steep plan. But more importantly is that, is that, you know, the first revenue streams of businesses are typically the wrong ones. They're really just in discovery mode until they find out the why us, why down questions. And so when you look across those five lenses that came out of that startup playbook, proprietary gift led to extreme focus, right? Optionality is the end. You got to test a lot of things to find the one giftedness of the company that leads to the third lens, which is building painkillers and not vitamin, vi- uh, vitamins, finding the chronic lifelong pain of the customer. And that really defines so much is, is who is that painkiller for? And the last two lenses are really about execution, right? Finding that 10X factor where you asymmetrically invest in the one attribute of the business that becomes impossible to replicate, which leads to the fifth lens, which is about permanence. How do you stay in the life of a customer for longer than three years? So proprietary gift with extreme focus, that's a painkiller that can be 10 times better and be permanent are really high bars. But, you know, most businesses take six, eight years to be able to answer those questions. So it's not a one or zero things. It's really about the lenses you view the world through and your customer through and how you're going to solve that, that lead to these extraordinary outcomes. So going back full circle to your question is really, betting on someone and how they think up front and their giftedness and obsession is sort of a, the cocktail of things you're looking for. Can you train yourself to be good at this or is it something that you're just born with, that you just have a good gut instinct and, and that's just it? You know, there are elements of superhero entrepreneurs that um, are, in, you know, literally one of one, one in a million, and they exist. They absolutely exist. Um, and, you know, very often, if you look at around, you really dig under the surface, you know, they, those, those origins of why they have burning drive come from really, you know, sometimes really troubled relationships with parents or shame, honestly, is those are things that drive them to, uh, to, to do extraordinary things um, and to risk big and, and those returns that come with that. Um, but for everybody else, uh, it is, uh, really getting the permission in your life, ideally from your parents, but definitely from yourselves. We are that permission to be able to care deeply about something. And we're willing to make trade-offs with perspective on the cost of achieving that solution, achieving that, um, that outcome. Very few entrepreneurs that I know that have, you know, had extraordinary success care about the money. The money is a downstream system-based effect uh, that led to the outcome because you would never be able to withstand the upfront discomfort and pain of actually getting there. So 
um, you know, very often uh, it's tr it's learned and some some of it's just experienced because of a life 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 moment that then becomes you uh, and your purpose to uh, to solve it. This is why I think that this time is kind of scary is that you have all of these people who have lost their jobs, who've decided to pursue their dreams of being entrepreneurs, and they're throwing everything into that idea and they are focused on the money. When would you suggest that they say, you know what, this isn't working. I need to think of something more logical or try and get hired by a more established company or when should they just try and weather the storm? Well, I mean, I think that one of the best pieces of advice I got uh, by no chance was from Elon once when he said, you know, wishful thinking is the enemy. When you're crossing your fingers, and really as an entrepreneur, you can only answer this question. When you're crossing your finger, hoping that, you know, behavior changes the world or that someone's going to, you know, reward you for what you've bet your life on, um, you know, you're in trouble. And so I think that these are things that only an entrepreneur can actually answer themselves is that wishful thinking around, you know, the need in the world and, and your role in fixing it. So that might be about the customer, but also may very well be about the why you, the proprietary gift, gift question. The other element I just say, the third element of asking answer that question, so wishful thinking, the proprietary gift question, the entrepreneur, the third one is just timing. When you back up and you, this is a question I asked Reed Hoffman when he, we, uh, we, way back when we did the uh, startup playbook, you know, to what degree would you look at every dollar in the bank and say, you know, that was a function of, you know, good timing and good fortune. You know, a lot of entrepreneurs will tell you kind of 70, 80% of the reason why I was successful is because I was there when it happened. Um, and, you know, most of those companies that are, actually exist have been well-funded or they made their own revenue uh, to survive it. But they were there because, you know, those extraordinary outcomes happen because they're really outside forces. So you're predicting a condition change in the world and then it shows up on time and you're there. So when you think about the job of a founder, a CEO, or again, I believe this is true about our own personal lives. I draw very little distinction between the two. It's really three things. The first thing is, is that you have to have a vision and it really has to be, you know, on time. So I have to be on time kind of within a three-year boundary, but really executing at the, at the right time in, in the year I'm in by a kind of a quarterly basis. The second is, is that I got to put the people in the right seats at the right time, but kind of employ one through 20, 20 through 50 and 50 through 100. And at least for employee one through 20, you almost can't make any mistakes because by the time that person gets in that job and, and may, might not be the right person, you got to replace them. And that takes us six months, then 90 days to replace them and another 90 days to uh, get someone ramped up. That's a year. In a year, you can be out of business. So those first 20 employees are linchpins. You can kind of make a couple mistakes from, to 50 and then a handful more from 50 to 100. But that third job, so the first one being vision on time and second is, is talent, is the third is just you can never run out of money. And there's really only two ways to uh, solve for that. You can either earn it or you can raise it. And both are very difficult, but relative to sort of the value you're creating, in most cases, earning it is probably the best scenario for you because very few companies as a whole are actually venture funded. You know, it's in the single digit thousands as opposed to the 2.3 million uh, new companies formed every year. So having this perspective, these lenses, the way you think, you know, speaking truth to yourself and listening to the customers, all this confluence really leads you to an a, a, a self-awareness that um, you have to be good at a lot of things to create value in the world to be successful in, in running your own company. If that's not true, you don't have to be a founder. You could join someone, you know, become a superpower in a, in a company that's already solved those needs 
or just do that same job in a large organization. There's lots of paths. Why is it that founders sometimes don't make the best long-term managers of the companies? I can speak for my own journey as well for this, but as I've learned, I'm now 47, so I'm doing this four times now. Well, one is, is that um, they fall in love with their ideas and not obsessed with the problem. Along the line, they, they, they lose their bearing. Um, sometimes they become successful so fast that, as they say, they fall in love with their own press. They, uh, you know, they don't allow their organization to grow beyond themselves. Um, also, you know, I'd say another, there's so many reasons why this happens is that, you know, they, um, they're not, they don't create an organization that is, uh, capable of leading itself without them. So, you know, for example, like one of the key attributes of a company going to scale is when you have individual performers, stars who are then, they themselves are amazing. That kind of zero through 50, 50 through hundred employees who actually have to go from vertical stars to horizontal stars. They have to make everyone around them better as opposed to being the stars. Those are very different people and very few people kind of move to that vertical to horizontal transition. And that includes the founder because that job is really leading and managing a company. Those are two different skills. Um, and so I think organizing teams around you that fill in your liabilities, uh, both from sometimes pathological optimism, which I have sometimes to, you know, bringing the right school, you know, skills and tools around you all allow the company to scale and, 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 and live out its total potential. You talked too about how some of the key things for founders to do or bosses really in, in any aspect of the work world are to lead with kindness and graciousness, which aren't really things that you would necessarily think of when you think of bosses and CEOs. Why do you think it's so key if you're maybe coming off weak? Yeah, I don't, I don't conflate vulnerability with weakness as some people do. And I'm not suggesting that you're, you're saying that. I do think that for some leaders from different generations, that's a really tough thing. What, I, what I'm trying to set the conditions for in my companies is commercial or just truth, right? And so to create truth, you, you have to have really specific conditions inside the organization that allow it to happen. So for one, you know, the ability to have trust and vulnerability, right, is, is critical for people to see you as a whole person that they can relate to. And so, you know, they can't be whole if you can't show up as whole. I have this rule. The second thing is, I would say, is just the values and the beliefs of the company. But one centrally that care, I care a lot about is called the seven to one rule that I created kind of two companies ago, which is a ratio of good to bad. It's a uh, seven good to every one bad. And it's a it's an extraordinary ratio that's almost statistically impossible to achieve. And that's sort of the point, which is everybody is going to fail, right? I'm going to fail you. You're going to fail me. But the, our ability to stare down that truth, that failure, and go after it and solve it together shoulder to shoulder as opposed to across the table where you hold your failure like a pet, right? And you, you, uh, you, you indict yourself allows the organization to get to the truth, solve it, and move forward. So I believe in addressing things, forgiving each other, and moving forward. Now, what's powerful about this idea is that in the same way, it's so extraordinary. If you're suffering or experiencing a lot of failure, it's probably the wrong company for you. But we're going to tell you the truth, and we're going to find you the right company because it's probably not ours because the balance of extraordinary versus you know, that failure is going to be you know, in concert with reality. We're just going to stare down that reality and focus on solving together. I also, I'd say the third thing is just the idea of becoming, which is, you know, I had my um, mentor and uncle who died of brain cancer about five years ago, and I was the last to see him. And as we said goodbye to each other, he said, don't focus on who you are in the world, focus on who you're becoming. And what he was saying is, is that, 
you know, if your entire ambition of your organization is a zero sum outcome of getting the top of something and whether it be money or relationships, otherwise, when I get this, I will feel, you know, this, you know, when you get to the top, you realize there's nothing there. Right. And so falling in love with the journey, which is 99% of it is lived in the struggle of who you're becoming that discomfort where kind of we all are today. The myth of planning, the myth of control start to fall away. Moral illusions fall away. Like we're experiencing, you know, in this moment of BLM, you know, we're in a place of tremendous transformation learning, but you know, that's what you love. And so when you sell the company or you never get to the top, you regret, you know, losing it because that's where that joy was. And so I really try to model the company's mindset around becoming in the seven to one rule and, you know, creating an organization that can focus on the truth, um, which is often hard to do. You mentioned that you're the father of three sons, and I'm wondering what advice you would have to parents to help prepare their kids for this growth mindset that really is needed now and will obviously be needed for the rest of time. Well, my sons are young. They're 10, 13, and 14, about to 15. So I'm kind of halfway through the journey. So the verdict is out if this is any good advice or not. Um, (laughs) So... (laughs) But I, they're great boys. They really are. They're so different. But um, I kind of, I jokingly say I have a monk, a comedian, and an entrepreneur or a serial killer. We're not sure yet. You know, I, I really focus on systems and mindset. So, you know, I may not like the outcome of their decision making. So I could either, you know, you know, punish them or reward them based on the outcome. But in reality, where I really focus is less on that, that, that result and more about the way they think and the way they behave, the, the systems thinking. So, there's a great book as, as young children they read called The Slight Edge, which is, talks about kind of com- the compounding interest of habits. As well, um, uh, we, we, use a, we do two other apps, one called the Day One app, and I've created a, a five-minute journal for them every d- single day that they can start and end their day that orients them, where they can ask themselves simple questions around, you know, you know when they start the day, like, what am I grateful for? And what would make today great and daily truths they need. And then the top three things. And at the end of the day, they can go back in five minutes and I can, they can say, you know, here are three amazing things that surprised me. Where is my energy depleted? What were my micro failures and kind of asks of the universe and God, you know, these things are important. Remember that, you know, that very often they're making progress and they can't see it. They only can focus on the fear. Right. And then the third, the, this, the second thing is an app called productive and, We've created, you know, a dozen habits, six in the morning, six at night. These are simple. I have about 40, but just they can swipe, you know, make their bed, do push-ups, meditate, um, you know, pack, you know, at night, pack their, their, their book bag or lay their clothes out or get their homework done or eat their breakfast. Very basic things that all the way down to their savings, they can learn as habits that don't take a lot of time. They just could create the energy to do that. The last thing I'll say with them and my boys, which is I really am trying to have, help them develop um, a sense of where their decisions are coming from. And so this, the, the mental model I talk about with them is that they create their reality, right? The outward looking reality, which is a result of sort of, it sits, can you, if you imagine the letter T <laughs> on the T of their choices, which I, I'm talking about the systems of, but the choices are really intentions, right? They're the same thing, but they really result in our reality because if they can understand what's underneath the intention, which is the question of why, why do I intentionally make these choices that lead to this reality? If they can develop a sense of that, what's underneath the why is one of only two choices, and that is fear or love. And so I help them uh, reconnect with 
why am I making these decisions, that conversation that have intention that lead to the results of my life? And then look at the systems and then ground themselves daily. So this, this, this framework are just simple habits, the way they think and the way they measure it that help them, you know, they may not be the outcome, but they know where they can go back and tune their life. And along the way, they're not going to get lost. And so I'm kind of like the coach and the owner of the team at the same time. <laughs> we, have a, we, have a very, we have a very tight relationship. So it's probably more than you want to know, but. <laughs> no, 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 no. I love that. So would you tell them that when they are faced with criticism, that they should embrace it and just say, Hey, you know what? I appreciate the feedback. I'm going to try and get better. Would you tell them that they should ignore it and go with their gut? Or what would you say to them? I mean, I don't know anybody who's really accomplished anything without being able to take tough feedback. I really, I mean, you have to be open to bringing the truth into the room. You know, I think I've, you know, over the years have gotten very good at getting that, but also reflecting on it. And also it's also been a liability for me because I, want to either avoid it. I, I, I would, you know, I just want to focus on the vision and get, you know, stay optimistic. And there's, there's a lot of truth in that to stay resilient, to stay resilient, but you have to be dealing in fact, and, and very often uh, you have to deal with that for yourself. So over the years, I've done pretty significant 360 reviews from the, from my teams. I've written as a CEO called like, the CEO user guide, which is, you know, what's, how do I think, how do I work, how to, how to use me as a, as a leader and also relate to, my liabilities in a way. And so you wouldn't know that if you couldn't take tough feedback and, and get, um, you know, you know, you know, sh- let it allow to shape you. I'm also blessed that I have really good, you know, people around me. I mean, from at my home um, to, um, you know, my co-founders, uh, you know, they all are just extraordinary uh, at creating the safety and giving the feedback. If you've not read, you know, Brene Brown's book series, uh, as well as the books on radical candor, I encourage you to um, you know, to, to read them and listen to them because they teach you how to share things directly with people. So they're received. So as the line says, it's not how you, it's not what you say, it's how you make someone feel. So if you learn how to do that well, and you can give direct feedback, that's truly a gift because that means you can receive it too. David, our show is called Nobody Told Me. And we always ask our guests, what is your nobody told me lesson? So what is it that nobody told you about life or being an entrepreneur or a CEO or growth or being a dad? What is it that comes to mind? And I'm sure you've got so many lessons, but what would you pick to pass on to others that is a lesson maybe you had to learn the hard way and you'd like to make easier for somebody else? Oh, wow. I would just say to really value what you deeply care about, your ideas. If I look back on my career, look at the, the companies I've been part of and founded or written or books, all the sort of like quote unquote success of my modest career I've had have all come from original creations that I deeply cared about. Whenever I was sort of like ambitious or it was about me, so to speak, or about success, generically speaking, it never really worked. <laughs> it all had all the success, so to speak, has come from a deep sense of purpose and care. And whenever I got off of that, because I was either want, it was about the company or about an individual success or my reputation or something, I never really got in trouble. I think that the reason why is because you know I've had to start over a couple of times where I the the company was so intertwined into my fear right that I just gripped it I demanded it to grow or demanded it to drive it to a specific vision and outcome 
the reality was I was completely isolated and alone because no one could help me and no one knew how to help because I wasn't asking and I wasn't giving it over. And in reality is like, you have a lot less control than you really think in your life and in your companies and in your ambitions. And secondly, is that people aren't really thinking about you. 99% are never thinking about you. In fact, they don't even care. But for the ones that care, they don't even think about you. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I guess the, the rule is, is that you not only do you have to give it over to the universe or God or however you, whatever you believe, because you need help and you need, it needs to come from a place of genuine care. And also in, in that context, you, you need to ask. You need to ask for help. You need to ask for outcomes because you know, it can't really be a, come from a place where it's about your ambition. Um, so I think the, the short answer is, is that, you know, value um, what you deeply value. And, uh, and I think the answer to success flows through that state because you're literally open to all of the solutions, all of it. It's not your idea. It's, it's, the, it's, 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 it's the solution that everyone benefits from. And that openness flows to a, a higher degree of success than being ambitious, closed and making it about yourself. That's beautiful advice, not only for entrepreneurs, but just for anybody who's listening. Yeah. So we really appreciate that. And how can people connect with you on social media and learn about the book and learn about Bionic? Sure. Well, Bionic is that if you're, if you're sitting in a large organization and you're going through disruption or growth transformation, you can always go to onbionic.com, O-N-B-I-O-N-C-E-C.com, onbionic. You can reach me at david at onbionic.com. And for, I do a lot of speaking now all over the world that you can learn more about that at uh, David S. Kidder, D-A-V-I-D-S-K-I-D-D-E-R.com. More about the books there and happy to send this to you. But, um, you know, listen, I'm very grateful to be here with you guys. I, I, I actually got a chance to listen to your podcast more on this. I love your energy and purpose. Hopefully this validates some of the things that you know, your proprietary gift with focus that's, you know, creates the value that you guys have had such incredible success on. So those lenses, lenses matter for everyone. Well, well, we could talk with you for hours and hours. You are such a wealth of information that people need right now. I love your outlook. I mean, I just, I, do I, too. I, I, I think love everybody your outlook needs and your it purpose. And, and yeah. 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 And it's funny when you mentioned Brené Brown as well, she's such a big influence for me. So yes, going back to the idea of vulnerability, I don't think that's a bad thing at all, but I know that that really is a common misconception for people. There's a lot of power in it because, you know, especially now where, you know, you need to be known it's really important to be known because everyone is living through some version of a similar experience. It's shared in this regard. Um, I friends are going through this and have cancer and have, you know, challenges at home and oh, like, you man. know, very difficult things, but you know, you can't, you, you, this is, if there's ever a time to need each other, this is the time I wrote a piece with one of my, you know, most admired leaders and mentors, uh, uh, gentleman crystal and, uh, about how to lead with truth. And, uh, this is in this is on my LinkedIn profile profile if you want to see it. But it, you know, between you and your family or your team or you know, you know, your company you're leading in larger context is a gap, right? And that gap is really, you know, you having the answers and your 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 sense of like moral authority to lead them and tell them where we're going in the absence of like any facts or any truth because they've changed dramatically. It's not like past precedents. It's a great predictor of future outcome right now. Your experience, in fact, is probably your liability. <laughs> You're all discovering this together. So the wider that chasm between you and your team or your family, that chasm is the truth. And you need to, you need to ask for your people to fill it and create the bridge back to you. 
because it's not about you to them. It's about them to you. The answers are really at the edge, at the middle of the organization. They're at the they're on the vanguard with the customer because that's where they are. You're sitting in a place where planning got you there, not discovery. Discovery is empowered by people who tell the truth and sit at the edge. So if you're not asking for that bridge back to you, the truth, and filling it and leading them with that vulnerability, you're even more isolated. You're even more alone because you have, you're, you're bearing down on the, the, the myth of control, which was I was just describing about, you know, the caring more. So this is really upending so much in the, what, how we've been trained and led to, you know, for these moments, this is not an opportunity to go back and sort of like micromanage a fractured organization. You know, the organization is smashed. I wrote another piece with a very good friend of mine at the Harvard business school about the bowl is smashed right now. We we're building a new bowl organizationally in our lives. This has to be flexible and resilient and can hold many things in because ultimately we're managing many different futures right now all at the same time. I think people misunderstand. It's like, it's not just one jet stream I'm trying to get to <laughs> of my reality that I'm trying to create. It's that there are many different outcomes with conditions that I don't control and some I need to plan for that I have to fill with truth that's not within me. It's probably my organization. It's with my spouse. It's with my kids. You know, and so that's a receiving request, not a, uh, a leading request. And so that really is, this, this is so transformative, so many different levels. Uh, for so many people right now, and, I, and not the least of which is myself. Well, David, we thank you so much for sharing your wisdom. We really do. And we hope we could uh, maybe call on you again down the line and, and share some more. You know, it'd be fun to talk about um, starting over. I'm writing my next book and next podcast whole series is going to be about refounding. And it's the idea of refounding your life. And how, how, do, you, how do you develop the fortitude to start over? And I, I've had a couple moments where that has that happen, but I, the metaphor I'd use, and I'll close this with you, is that, you know, at some point you feel like you're, you're trying to make a path work in your life and you're sort of like running through thorns. The thorns are getting thicker and you're sort of like bleeding out. The harder you run, the faster you're, 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 you're failing or you're, you're kind of, in many cases, dying, right? And so I had a moment that was not dissimilar to that where I sort of lifted myself up out of that moment and put myself on a clean road, a brand new road in my mind. But I started the road over again 20 years in the past, or in this case, 15 years in the past, when I was young and I was optimistic and the future was clean and bright and possible and all things are possible still. And sometimes you have to, I felt foolish, but in reality, that naivete, that sense of foolishness was actually regrounding me because all possibilities were true. I just need to start over. The starting over part begins in your mind and it lifts you out of the circumstances you're in and starts you in a place that is um, open again. And so those are really important conversations on the other side of this when that begins, when people switch from surviving to winning, um, because that's a huge uh, sort of threshold to cross in people's minds as they, you know, quite frankly, refound their lives or refound their companies to no fault of their own sometimes that's gonna be required from, from almost all of us. And we would love to talk with you about that in the future. That'd be fun. Our thanks to angel investor, Bionic co-founder, and best-selling author, David Kidder. And again, David's latest book is called New to Big, How Companies Can Create Like Entrepreneurs, Invest Like VCs, and Install a Permanent Operating System for Growth. And again, his website is davidskidder.com. I'm Jan Black. And I'm Laura Owens. You're listening to Nobody Told Me. Thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> 